The psalm that is before us uh, this morning is part of a group of psalms that is known in Jewish tradition as the Egyptian Hallel. This psalm, Psalm 113 through 118, were to be songs as calls to worship during some of Israel's great feasts, including Passover. And they were to be sung as a way of remembering and praising God for his great work of redemption, and also to help them cultivate hope in God's future acts of deliverance. It is believed that the psalm that we're looking at, Psalm 113, is one of the very hymns that Jesus and his followers sang at the Last Supper. My hope and prayer this morning is that God would use this psalm to open our eyes, to help us behold God, to see him more clearly as he's presented to us in the psalm. Not just that we would see and understand, but the Spirit of God would would stir our hearts, would renew our minds, so that we would develop even greater zeal and passion to see God praised in our lives, with, that we would praise him with everything that we have. But not just us, but that we would also have a greater desire to see him praised by those around us, by those in this community, and by the nations of the world. That is a prayer that I have as we go and look at this psalm together. And I'm trusting God to answer us, to do that very thing, because we know that is his will, that he would be known, that he would be praised. The plan is for us to look at the psalm, first by looking at the great imperative, as I call it here, that we have in the psalm, the one great imperative that we see in the psalm. And then what we want to do look after looking at the imperative and to look at two great realities about God, two wonderful things that God reveals about himself so that we would never tire of praising him. Two great realities to help fuel our passion. To see God's name praised from this time, forevermore, by all people in all places. So if you're taking notes, I don't have anything on the screen, but it is fairly simple. Two broad headings. One, the first one is one great imperative to consider, which we're going to see in the psalm. One great imperative. And the second one is two Great realities, two wonderful realities to behold. And I'm using the word behold purposefully. It is not just for us to understand, to know what they are. But as it will be very evident, those realities are things that we are to continually keep before our eyes. So one great imperative and two great realities to behold. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. There is one great imperative in this entire psalm, and it is praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. That's 
We think of hallelujah. That's exactly what it's saying. It is, a, it is in the imperative. It is a command where we are told to praise the Lord. But it's not just God in a generic sense. It's praise Yahweh. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God who has revealed himself. So the call is for the children of Israel to praise only Yahweh, no other God, not the gods of the nations, not Molech, not Baal, not Dagon, not Artemis, not Zeus, not any of the gods around them, but Yahweh. He alone is God and he alone is worthy of praise. So praise God, praise Jehovah. The same imperative is repeated in verses 2 and 3. It is amplified even. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time for forever. The psalmist calls us to praise, to bless, to adore the name of the Lord. And the idea is that we are to praise God as he has revealed himself. Not the God as we imagine him to be. Not the God as we would want him to be, but the God as he has revealed himself. So our praise of God is not just flattery, some vague, some flattery based on some, some vague idea that we have of God, but rather it is a response of our heart to God's great revelation of himself. Derek Kidner puts it like this, that praise that, that is in view here, that is acceptable here before God, it is the loving homage of the committed to the revealed. So the praise that God wants is a praise that is in keeping with the truth of who he is. It is not just some vague sense of, oh, okay, you know, I think, yeah, there's a good spirit out there. No, it is a God who has revealed himself truly, and we respond to that revelation by Rendering homage to our God. God and God alone is to be the ultimate object of our heart's praise and adoration. To whom is the imperative addressed? The psalm tells us that it is addressed to those who are the servants of the Lord. The servants of the Lord are the ones being commended here to praise him. Certainly all creation is to praise God, but the, in the context here, the, the command is being given directly to those who are the servants of God. Some see that as in a more restrictive sense, as perhaps the Levites were called to lead. But I don't. There's no point ultimately in restricting the the use of the word servant just to them, because even if the the leaders were they were in view, their job, their call was to lead the people. So all of God's people then are in view here. That all of them, all of us, are to praise God. The children of Israel were servants. They were slaves. And it's in the Hebrew, it's the very same word. Servants of the Lord. They were servants in Egypt. Now they have been freed from bondage. They were once servants of Pharaoh. Now they've been freed not to be their own masters, not to do as they please, not to serve the God of the nation, but to serve God himself. They were to be slaves of God, servants of God. And certainly we see in scriptures how often they had to be rebuked. Because their tendency 
was to do what? To follow the God of the nations. To follow after them. To serve the very gods who could not deliver their own people. That was our propensity to do. To just follow after those gods. So we see God again and again using his prophets to call his people. Serve Yahweh. Praise Yahweh. And I believe it is not just God's servants who had that propensity toward idolatry. Do we not also find ourselves at times wanting to praise, looking for other things, and valuing other things more than God? Ourselves, our country, or, or some other great things that we, we admire. We are God's servants, and we are to praise Him and Him alone. And we need that reminder. I mean, you read the book of Psalms, you see it over and over and over and over again. In this psalm, the comment is repeated several times, but you read the psalm. What's the idea? Does God have, what's the point? Why can't he just say something else? Why? We do need to be reminded of this great imperative. Uh, as John Calvin puts it, uh, if we consider how cold and callous men are in this religious exercise, we will not deem the repetition of the call to praise God superfluous. It, is, it wasn't superfluous to them. It is not superfluous to us. I, he continues, we all acknowledge that we are created to praise God's name. While at the same time, his glory is disregarded by us. Such criminal apathy is justly condemned by the prophet. Why? With the view of stirring us up to unwearied zeal in praising God. The repetition then of the exhortation to praise him ought to be considered as referring both to perseverance and order in this service. I hope you find it helpful, my dear brothers and sisters, to be reminded again this morning of the call to praise God. And that God would use this reminder, again, to stir us up, to stir our hearts to having unwearied zeal, to free us from, our, from the callousness that often marks us, from the indifference, from the sense of apathy that we have, where we read God's word and we're not moved. We're moved by a lot of other things, but the praise of God often does not Move us much. Oh, that God would just drive this truth home in our hearts this morning. And that we would not at all find that repetition, that call, that basic call that we've heard, that we understand to be superfluous at all. Now, when are we to praise the Lord? What is the context of this imperative that we are given? Verse 2 says we are to bless his name. His name is to be blessed from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting. So as God's servant, the call is for us to offer endless, ceaseless praise to God. Individually and as a church, his name is to be praised. Not just one day, not just one year, through every single season of our life. Through the good times, through the difficult times, when we are young, when we're old, when we're happy, when we're sad, when things are working well, 
when things don't seem to make sense at all. When we sense and we feel the presence of God and during those times when, when he does not seem to be there at all, the call is still the same for us to praise God, to praise him always. The praise of God must continue, must mark us every day, every moment, regardless of where we are. And of course, as we think of, of, of the need to praise God in an unding way, there is there also an implicit call for us to train our children, to teach them of God, so that once we are gone, they will continue to praise God. This should be our most, our greatest desire as parents. Many times we worry about what we're going to leave for them, money, and making sure that they have the best education that they achieve at the highest level. My dear friends, the greatest thing that we want should want to see in our children is for them to know God and to praise God. So there is a call then for multi-generational discipleship. That should be, as we look at our boys and girls here, that should be our greatest aspiration. As we think of the future of this church, We've praised God in the past. We're praising Him now. If the Lord tarries and we remain as a church for the next 50, 80 years, what should we want to see happen here? More and more people praising God. That has to be our greatest desires. Do we want to see this place filled? You bet, I do. Not for the glory not for our glory, but so that more and more people in this community would praise God. God's name is to be praised from this time forth and forevermore. But it also says from the rising of the sun to the going down, to the setting of the sun. That is, people from every nation, wherever we go, that want to see people, all people, all nations, People everywhere praising God. Now, as we think of praising God, sometimes we get the idea that, well, praise God has to do with, you know, getting our guitar, singing loudly, clapping. Yes, all of that is part of praising God. But our praise of God can be expressed differently in all sorts of ways, my dear friends. So there are times we come and we stand and we lift our hands and we shout, yes, we praise God. But there are those seasons in our lives where we're not able to sing loudly. Where there are tears, where we're saying, God, where are you? Where hearts are breaking. It does not mean now, okay, we, we are exempt now from praising God. Oh no, we, we can go and cry by ourselves. We no longer need to gather to praise the name of our God. We'll wait when things change, when things get better. And many people actually stay away from worship because of that. Oh no, right now I'm struggling. Oh, if we are the servants of God, we are to praise Him at all times with our tears. Have you been there? can think of moments in my life, my dear brothers and sisters, where I 
couldn't sing much. I mean, you probably see I'm not the quietest guy. You know, I can be quite expressive, but there are those moments, my dear friends, where I can't say much. I can't say much. Maybe I can whisper, and, and I'm on my face and on my knees, and I'm saying, God, where are you? I'm lamenting. But guess what? In our lament, we're praising God, you see. Know about different types of psalms, but all of them, the element of praise is all is there. We're lamenting, we're crying, we're longing. God, where are you? But what we are saying is, God, you are most valuable. I need you, and that is praising God. Do we get that? Maybe you, right now you feel burdened by your guilt. Oh God, I am unworthy. I don't feel like singing. But where else do I go? Who else can save me? Who else can lift me up? So to you I come. In my silence, I am praising you. We could go on and on, but dear friends, like David, we must say, we must believe, we must be committed to blessing the Lord at all times. He says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth at all times. And want all people to praise God. Uh, in verse 3, we see what, 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 what one of the commentators, Derek Kidner, points out as an echo of Malachi's vision. This idea of wanting to see God's name be praised by all people, by all the nations. In Malachi 1 verse 11 it says, For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place incense will be offered to my name. And a pure offering for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. So God's idea was never just for his servants to come solely from the nations of Israel. God's vision was to see worldwide worship, and that should be the longing of our hearts. To not just see God's name be praised from now and forever, but by all people, everywhere, by all nations. That should be the desire of our hearts as well. We want to evangelize. We want to go and tell people about Jesus. The Bible says to go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and here. And it is to be done to the praise and glory of our triune God. Now here's a question. How are we to maintain? How are we to cultivate and even deepen our commitment to God's name being praised everywhere and at all times? How do we do that? What is it that we need as we go through the ups and downs of life, the many twists and turns, the various seasons of our lives, and as individuals, as families, or as a church, how do we keep the praise of God central so that God's name is being praised all the time? Do we just say, all right, I'm just... A determined person. I, I, I'm just going to do it. 
Well, the rest of the psalm is very helpful here. Because what it does is, after giving us the command to praise God, it then sets forth for us two great realities about the God that we are commanded to praise. And the, what, what, what it means is that as we ponder these realities, as we understand them, and as we behold them, as we keep them before our eyes day in and, out and day out, regardless of the circumstances that we're in, and what we will find is that the Spirit of God will work in our hearts to fuel our worship. J.I. Packer talks about that very thing in his book, Not Knowing God, one of my favorite books, where he talks about the attributes of God. Now, we know a lot about those attributes. We can say what they mean. But how does knowledge about God become knowledge of God? And he talks about this very process of beholding God, Be Oh, I don't just the grace of God. Let me meditate on the grace of God. Let me meditate on the faithfulness of God. Let me dwell. Many of us will content to be able to talk and say, this is what it means. And to quote this person, quote that person. That is not the point. Beholding goes way beyond that. It's not less than that, by the way. It doesn't mean we don't understand. We need to know the truth. But we need to dwell. Ponder. Meditate. And so the two truths that I want to set before you are truths that I'm, I believe the psalm is calling us to behold. The first reality is this. That the God that we are commended to praise is the God who is high above. God is high above. The Lord is high above all nations. His glory above the heavens. He is above all nations. Let that sink in for a moment. All nations. Little nations like where I'm from, little Haiti. So in the U.S. All nations at all times. God is above all nations. His glory is above the heavens. God is sovereign over all things. He is transcendent. The only one who is truly transcendent. He is above. He is exalted above all creation. He reigns over all things, all nations, all kingdoms. He's made the heavens and the earth, all things visible and all things invisible. He alone is the uncreated one. He's the God, the Bible tells us, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. The God we'll call to praise is the God who is without rivals. People say, well, I don't believe in God. I don't believe this. Well, that does not change the fact that God is Lord and Master over all. God is God. There is no other. And He rules. And He is high above. And again, we're not, just to, we're not to think of this primarily in spatial terms. Well, no, nah, we're not to think of this in spatial terms. Well, let me see. Go high, high, high. No, it is the idea is that God is above all things. 
is exalted above all things. Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. David praises God. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Is God our exalted God? not deserving of our unending praise? Is he not? Do you know anyone like God? Anyone who is above all things? We marvel many times at people who are great, uh, whether in the realm of education, the realm of politics, and we are in awe of them. God is the one who is to be feared. God is the one who needs to inspire awe in every single one of us more than anything else. He is, and Him alone, is the exalted one. There's another reality that we ought to see here that will help fuel, sustain, maintain our worship of God, cultivate our desire, increase our zeal to praise God. And it is that God is not just high above, he's not just this transcendent God, but he's also the God who is near. He's the God who is near, and particularly near his people. Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth. He raises the poor from the dust, and lifts the needy from the ash heap. To make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. So the God we are to behold is the God, yes, who is seated on high. The God who is enthroned as the king of all creation. But the God who looks far down on the heavens in the earth, and, 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 and I love the way the Jerusalem Bible puts it, and the way it says it, it's like this, that the Lord who is enthroned so high, that God is so high that he almost has to stoop to see the sky and the earth. So the idea here is this God who is far, who is so exalted as it though he has to stoop to see us. That's how high he is. That's far above us he is. Yet this God is also, he's not just transcendent, but he's simultaneously, at the same time, the God who knows, who sees, and who is deeply involved in caring for the needs of his people, placed in this little tiny corner of the universe. Think about that. Think about that. How significant would you feel if your favorite person, your sports fan maybe, or politician to politics, and you ought to go to a huge rally, a huge auditorium, a huge stadium, and you're sitting there thinking nobody sees you. And then all of a sudden, this person 
you think means the world. Would you come and say, by the way, Thomas? Like, what? Yeah. From the moment I came here, I've been looking for you. Oh, I was way up there, but I was looking for I wanted to see you. Found a telescope. I knew exactly where you were, and, and I came with all my escort, and wanted you to know that I've been thinking about you. I know you. To know more about you, I see you. Let's have lunch together. Anybody here would not be amazed? The very thought itself, are you serious? Yeah. Can you, all of us would be absolutely blown away. But what we have in scripture is something infinitely greater than this. That the God who is the greatest being of all, the God who is exalted over all creation, takes notice of you and me. And they say, oh, big deal. Oh, I'm, it is a big deal. You know how big you are? Have you thought about how big you are? You thought, my house is pretty big, Thomas. Have you thought about how small we are in the context of the universe? Jim Lovell, one of the astronauts in a documentary called In the Shadow of the Moon, says this about his experience up there. He says, we learned a lot about the moon. But what we really learned was about the earth. The fact that just from the distance of the moon, you can put your thumb up and you can hide the earth behind your thumb. Everything that you've ever known, your loved ones, your business, the problems of the earth itself all behind your thumb. And how insignificant we really all are, he says. He said, but then we are fortunate, how fortunate we are to have this body and to be able to enjoy living here amongst the beauty of the earth itself. My dear brothers and sisters, we should be indeed rightly humble by how small we are and how small the earth is when placed in the context of God's creation. Yet the glorious truth of this psalm, not just of this psalm, but of the rest of scriptures, is that though we are small, we are not insignificant in the eyes of our maker, and even more we can say of our heavenly father. He sees us. He's not just there, above, exalted, but he is down here. He sees us. He's with us. He knows us. Another writer puts it like this, the biblical picture of God is not merely that of a powerful and omnipresent creator, but also of a God who actually cares about seemingly insignificant people located in a tiny corner of the universe. He is a compassionate father who cares for the poor and needy and draws near to them. He takes note of weak 
invulnerable and works for their good. Indeed, we ask with David, what is man, that you are mindful of him. How are you feeling this morning? Feeling weak? Are you feeling needy? Are you feeling vulnerable? And if you're not, I hope you will be. But the Bible tells us that God takes notice of us. He knows us. The song says he knows our name. He sees. He knows everything about us. He sees our tears. He knows our burdens. He sees them all. The God who is worthy of our unending praise, the God of whom Isaiah writes, thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly. And to revive the heart of the contrite. And in this psalm, we see God's nearness or imminence, big theological word. We see that demonstrated in how God takes care of three groups that are particularly weak and vulnerable and needy. He raises the poor, the psalm tells us in verse 7, from the dust. He raises the poor, that is one who not only lacks resources, but one who is helpless about his very situation. He raises the poor from the dust. The poor's only hope of rescue is has to come from outside of himself. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. Have you seen ash heaps? Have you? Maybe some ash heaps in, in Atlanta, or maybe you've watched documentaries about ash heap. Another word is dunghill. You know, many places where what do you do with garbage? You have those huge piles, and those piles are often where? Not in downtown, outside of the city. Lots of trash and they smell. But what we do know is that often on those piles of trash and garbage, that's where the poorest of the poor often reside. That's where they often are, on those, on the ash heap. That's a picture that we are to see here in the psalm. And the word of God tells us that this God who is high, who, exalt, who is exalted, who has to stoop to see the sky, so to speak, sees the poor person who is most likely unseen by others on the ash heap. The person who on the social ladder is as low as you can possibly get, the Bible tells us that our God sees the needy. He doesn't just see the needy. 
but he does something. He doesn't just see the condition of the needy, he does something about it. And in the psalm it says that he, he reverses it. He reverses it. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make him sit with princes, with the princes of his people. By his power, by his mercy, by his compassion, he lifts up from the ash heap the needy to make him sit in the place of highest honor. Our God is the God of reversals. He's able to lift people up from the place of greatest humiliation and shame and hopelessness and despair to the place of highest honor. That's the God that we are called to worship. The God who, verse 9 says, who gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Now, as you listen to this, the words I just read, or even the words before them, you find out those words sound a little bit familiar. I think I've heard them before. Maybe you were there this week in your Bible reading. Well, what we have here is really an echo of Hannah's song. And it is a very conscious look back at Hannah's song. You remember Hannah? First Samuel? The barren woman who had suffered for so long. For so long she wanted to be a mother and she could not be. And she suffered great shame and humiliation for being without children. For you see, being without children was not her choice. There are people who say, well, I don't want a child. And if you go someplace today, you don't have a child. Nobody said, oh, can't do But in those days, to be barren was not just that, well, you know, she just chose not to have one. It was really shameful to be barren. That you couldn't know the joy that other women knew. Much question regarding your future. Your security, because the security, your security lied in your children. So you wanted to have as many as possible that they would be able to care for you. So there was great concern about the future uh, for Hannah. She was barren. But there's also something else that is significant about barrenness among the Jewish people. To be barren means that you do not have the opportunity that other Jewish women had of possibly, possibly giving birth to the one who would redeem Israel. That that's possibly is not even there. Because you cannot even have a child. So Hannah, after God miraculously intervened for her by opening up her room, by giving her a child, then broke forth in praise to God. The God who cares for the lowly. The God who cares for her in her misery. The God who was mindful of her vulnerability, of her helplessness. My heart, Anna says, 
exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge. And by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken. But the feeble find on strength. Those who are full have heard themselves out for bread. But those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven. But she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. And listen to verse 8. Exactly what we have in Psalm 13. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. This is no accident. The psalmist consciously looked to Hannah. I'm going to show this God who is exalted, but though he's exalted, who cares for the helpless. And she wanted Hannah as an exhibit of that. But, there's more. You know, like those commercial help, there's more. See, what we have in Psalm 13 is not just the psalmist looking back to a great song, the song of Hannah, but also we have an anticipation of a greater song by another servant who knew what it was to be lifted. The song of Mary, the Magnificat. Where the same themes again are seen. Where Mary praises God. For what? For being the God who looks on the humble estate of his servant. The God who scatters the proud, she says. Who brings down the mighty from their thrones. And the God who exalts those of humble estate. The God who fills the hungry with good things. And sends the rich away empty. Mary saw herself as one who was on the ash heap. Who was needy. Who needed grace, the favor of God. Both Hannah and Mary were amazed. That God who is high above all things. All power, all creation, all nations would also be gracious enough to draw near, to see them, to hear them, and to lavish his favor on them. Of course, they boasted in God. That's why we read the songs. They beheld God. They knew God. This God, and who, of course, commanded them, them to praise him, and the thing for him, how can I not praise this God who's looked at me? This God who is above, now he has come near, and he has seen me, and he has touched me. What about us? Are we amazed? 
Are we amazed, brothers and sisters, that the God of all creation, the God who is exalted, who is bigger than anything we can ever, ever imagine or conceive, that this God takes notice, and this is not a way of speaking, literally takes notice of me and you and every single one of us, of this church, of this country. Oh, maybe someone, of course, don't you know how powerful we are? Huh. I mean, I'm from Haiti, and so I'm like, I listen to, oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah, you people. What? We all become so arrogant. Of course God sees us. Of course. Of course God is going to bless us. We are being. Oh my dear friends. None of us. Is in a place. Where we deserve. The look of God. That is the saving look of God. The grace of God. We are all on the ash heap. And all of us should be like Mary and Hannah, absolutely amazed by the truth that this God, who is holy, who is exalted, sees you and me as sinners, and doesn't see us and say, shh, for he condemns us. But he shows grace, that he shows favor. He sees us on the ash heap. He doesn't burn us with the ash heap. But instead, he lifts us up. It is not possible, brothers and sisters, to be beholding the, the greatness of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God, and not want to praise him. So where are you? Tired? Busy for the things? enraptured with the things of the world, here's the call. Behold your God. Behold your God. That's what Isaiah says to God's people of old. And I will say, my dear friends, I can't think of something more important for the church today and for the church in every age to be engaged in, in beholding God himself. That will change you. Change everything about you. Certainly our praise, certainly our worship, but everything about us. Beholding God. God knows us. He sees us. He heals us. Maybe on your bed thinking, oh boy, I'm forgotten. Nobody's come to visit me. I haven't received any email or text. Oh boy. God sees you. He knows you. He loves you. He knows where you are. He's not caught off guard. You're like, man, I'm in trouble. What am I going to do? God is in control and he's involved. And he is near. He is not far away from his children. And this is not wishful thinking. This is not Thomas, this guy here, who's trying to make you feel good. So that you could leave this place and say, ah, I feel good today. 
I'm ready for this next week. I would have no intention of being one of those guys that you see on television. I can't, couldn't do it. This will not engage in some kind of imaginary tale just to keep us going. The fact that we've been talking about of God's care, that the exalted, true, and living God cares for us, for the small, for the weak, for the unnoticed, for the, for helpless sinners, is established for us in the gospel, my dear friends. Verses 7 and 8, what they ultimately anticipate, some of see it clearly, what they ultimately anticipate, as Kidner says, is the great downward and upward sweep of the gospel, which was to go even deeper and higher than the dust, the throne of princes, the suit of the gospel that would take us from the grave to the throne of God. Thank ash heap is bad, right? That's low. We were lower than the ash heap. Lower than the dunghill. We were. The Bible tells us that we were dead. We were dead in our trespasses. So it was just poor. We were dead in our trespasses and sins before God. We were bankrupt. We had nothing. Helpless. Powerless. Can a dead person do something for himself? You can be more, you cannot be more needy than when you're dead. That's where we were. Not just ash heap. Not just needing this or wanting to be a, a mom even. We're dead in our sins. Bible says. But God in his mercy has made us alive together with Christ and raised us up, past tense, done, deal, with Jesus, with him, and has seated us with him, where? In the heavenly places, with Christ Jesus, the place of our honor. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And for that church we say, hallelujah, praise the Lord. No other response. What else? What else? Is it hard to praise the God who has given you life? Is it hard? To praise this God who's looked at your needy, desperate, helpless condition and who has forgiven you, who has redeemed you, who has not just provided you escape from hell, but he has made you part of his family and he is sitting you in heaven with his son. 
Can anything better be done for us? Can you imagine something better than this? The psalmist says, my lot has fallen in pleasant places. I have a rich inheritance. Oh, oh, I thought I was going to get this. I was going to get this little parcel. But because of the Lord, my lot has fallen in pleasant places. My dear friends, wherever you may be this morning, if you know this Jesus, you have cause to praise God. Don't, doesn't matter where you may be. Maybe you feel forgotten. Does it matter? But he has looked at you. He's given you life. He sees you with his son. And you are seated in the heavenly places. Maybe there's great shame in your past. Maybe it's hard to put those things aside. Aside. Maybe you look at yourself and I don't measure up. It is the touch of God on you, my dear friends, that makes you significant. And God has laid his hand on you and me. And he has raised us up. When we do not praise God, or we find ourselves preoccupied or captivated by the other, by the things of the world, and that's what gets us going. It's because we lose sight of this. And we needed to hear this imperative. I needed. I've been hearing it all week again and again. And I needed it. And if you find that the revelation of God in His Word doesn't move you at all, I really would urge you to ask yourself whether you know him at all. Whether you know him at all. Can you imagine what the response would be if somebody who was begging in some street in Atlanta and they're all there. And one day, while they're there begging, and a man veiled would come and say, come with me. Come with me. Oh, what? Come with me. And he comes and this man, I am Bill Gates or whatever. One of the, LeBron James has become, I'm LeBron James, billionaire. All right, okay. You've been on the street of Atlanta, let me tell you now. For the rest of your life, you will never again worry about anything and not just you, your children, your children's children. You are set for life. Whatever you want, you get. Now imagine this happened and this man says, all right, okay. And, and then he goes home and, hey, your friends, how was your day today? Ah, that was all right. Really? Is that possible? Is that possible? That's how scripture sometimes presents it for us. When we are callous, as Calvin says, when the order is not there, it is some, it is only and only because we've lost sight of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. 
of the greatness of it. That this God who needs nothing, who is far above, has seen us and has bestowed his favor toward us in Christ. And as we behold him, we'll find ourselves asking again and again as we think of how good he is individually, family, as a church, who is like the Lord our God? I'm going to ask that again. Who is like the Lord our God? We'll ask each other, who is like the Lord our God? We'll ask it now. We'll ask it tomorrow. And as long as we remain here, who is like the Lord our God? And there will be only one answer. Oh, there is none like the Lord. Oh, there is none besides you, God. Oh, there is no rock. There's no rock like our God. He's most worthy of praise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, who is like the Lord our God, the God who's made everything from nothing. The God who spoke and everything came to be. Who is like you? The God in whom there is no shadow. Who is like you? In your holiness. In your love. In your mercy. In your power. There is none like you. Who is like you, the God who redeemed us in the greatest way possible by sending his son, by coming down? Oh, by descending to the lowest parts to rescue us from the grave. The God who did not send an angel, but who came down in the person of his son to rescue us. To lift us up and to make us seated on the thrones by himself, with, by, with Christ. There is no one like you. Forgive us for our callous hearts, Father. Oh, forgive us for our propensity to make idols of people and things of ourselves. Forgive us. Forgive us for valuing a bunch of other things more than you. Forgive us, Father. For giving to other things the honor that is only due you. Father, may your grace renew us this morning. May your Holy Spirit visit all of us this morning and cause the truth of your word to be truly heard. That it would change us. It would change our minds. It would soften our hearts. It would move us to exuberant praise to God. 
And Father, I want to pray for anyone who may be here this morning, who may think, what in the world is this or that? Because they are blind. I pray that your spirit would do for them what he has done for us. That you would help them see that they are not God. That they are needy in their sins and that they are hopeless regardless of how good things seem to be going. That they would be convicted of the need to cry out to you to rescue them. I pray for them. Father, I thank you for this church. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for the place that the preaching of your word holds in this place and may continue to be central in this place. And Father, I thank you for all that you've done and for all that lies ahead of us. That this place would indeed be a place where God is praised, where God is glorified, where sinners come to know Christ so that they would praise God. God, we look to you for all of these things and so much more, for our good, for our joy, for the joy of those around us, but ultimately for the glory of your name. Amen.